1: I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet.
0: Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and in this episode I'm joined by Clara Cook. It's part two of our discussion about sexual assault in Star Trek. Uh, In the last episode we looked a little bit at some of the -the behind-the-scenes stories and the role of the Me Too movement in uh, reshaping the way that we understand some of these stories today. In this episode uh, we're continuing the conversation, we're looking in a little bit more detail at of the representations of sexual assault, be they literal or allegorical, that Star Trek has put on the screen. Um, As with the previous episode, this is a little bit of a warning as well that some of this material obviously uh, could be difficult for certain listeners. So do please bear that in mind and uh, listen under advisement.
1: Next Generation does kind of address the issue of consent. Um, they try anyway. And, but in the sense that, um, well, I th- particularly thinking of the episode violations, like obviously, you know, obviously, so there's these aliens that come aboard this, aboard the, uh, ship who are, um, ulians, I think they're called, who, uh, can evoke memories in people's minds. They're basically telepaths. And there's an interesting discussion right at the, um, beginning of the episode about, Memory, um, sort of like, it's very, very short, but about how like varied and unpredictable human memory can be. And this is one of the things that comes up a lot in stuff to do with sexual assault and rape is. You know, the victim's memories, um, and I would say like the accused memories, are often questioned. I mean, they would be questioned in a court of law, you know, and how different people remember the same scenario differently and different people have different ideas of what happened, you know, like he said, she said kind of thing. Um And that's where the issue of consent kind of comes in sometimes because, you know, it's believable consent, right? That's what the legal term is, believable consent. Um And there was a lot of campaigning to put the word believable in there because, uh, you know, a lot of the idea is that people, pres- well, in the past, people caught out of being prosecuted for rape and stuff because they just assumed consent, you know, like, uh, you know, I assumed this was okay. Um And so there the has to be like a sense of believable, you know, like it's actually believable, like the the person has the capacity and that you believe, but that's also a bit dodgy there as well. Cause you could read a lot into how does, how believable is something and what do you mean by believable? But one of the things that I thought about as interesting about the violations episode is that it is treated as a crime and it is treated as serious and although I've criticized Star Trek and Next Generation in this in this episode I do feel that, um, that violations Picard does take it quite seriously um, and that the assault of Troy and then R- Riker is assaulted after that and then also as Beverly it is referred to as basically a rape you know or a violation it's, this episode is called violation Although theirs are
0: never referred to as rapes or, I mean, that's, and that's the weird thing is, is Troy's is explicitly framed as a rape. And there's this weird issue where there's also this lingering question about that episode of whether her memory is genuine, because we assume that it's not. We assume that the other two memories are genuine. So Crusher has a memory of her husband being dead. Riker has a memory of some junior crew person sort of dying on his watch. We assume those are genuine traumatic memories. Uh, Troy's memory of Riker raping her or attempting to rape her, we kind of have to assume is not how it actually played out. But actually there's this sort of weird question in the episode. You know, why is it that everyone else's memory is kind of genuine and hers is is something that didn't happen? Or did it happen? Or, you know, what what exactly happened? I suppose we're supposed to think she says it was a pleasant memory. So we're supposed to think maybe they, you know, had a nice night on the carpet or whatever but it it, it it when the other guy takes over it turns into something violent and traumatic but it's it's weirdly left ambiguous i think episode, you're supposed
1: though. to think that um is it trev i think jev jev so i must say trev
0: he can't be called trev can he?
1: <laughs> i think he's called, I think. i think he's called jev which is close to trev let's be honest i think you're supposed to think he has sexual feelings for troy because he does that thing where at the very end of the episode where which Quite a lot of, I would say, perpetrators or abusers do. Like, they make it the victim's fault, you know? Like, you're disempowering the victim, basically. You're making it the victim's fault. Like, and he sort of says, why do you have to be so nice, so lovely, you know? Uh, and sort of implies that he has sexual feelings for her, which is why he's made this particular memory sexual, uh, or, or maybe violently sexual. Um, cause I assume we're supposed to think it's a sexual memory anyway. Uh, but not that Riker, sexually assaulted troy see when i was a kid and i watched this episode and i only watched it once as a child i found this a very upsetting episode to watch as a kid i found it really disturbing uh i also uh but i, I also was unsure i was like did Riker like rape troy like am i supposed to think that Riker raped troy mother but, like, but she's not walking around acting like Riker raped her so but then i was like but then when did they when did they have like this sexual thing? Like, <laughs> so what happened?
0: So, either, so I suppose, either, I mean, if we're going to go into it, in the real memory, one of two things happened. Either he said, you know, uh, do you want to? And she said no. And that was the end of it. Fine. Or she said no and then changed her mind. And actually, they had a nice time. I, I don't know. But it is, it is, I mean, the, the memory starts with Riker sort of saying, you know, come on then and and Troy <laughs> so say no we can't do that now we're colleagues now you know we we we're not going out anymore you know which sort of taps in it's a it's an interesting piece of canon in a way because Riker and Troy's on off confusing relationship is always slightly ambiguous and slightly unclear you know are they are they sort of friends with benefits at this point you know what's what exactly is going on really um and it does sort of seem to answer that question but then it answers it by not resolving what actually happened because the only version we see is this really traumatic version that we we just kind of have to believe isn't what really happened because if it was it would raise too many enormous questions that you know that don't seem to fit with the episode but the episode never actually tells us what did happen weirdly it's a weird um, no
1: that's true i mean but it's a
0: very strange omission i think in the way the episode's written
1: but on the on the episode's bonus points on the good points is that the enterprise crew do Really investigate how Royker and Troy and Beverly fell into a coma. Um, they are taken seriously and they are supported. Um, and then the perpetrator is kind of brought to justice. I mean, he's not really brought to justice, but he's kind of, you know, he's accused and it's kind of pro proven that he is actually guilty. Uh, and one thing I didn't like about it was, I mean, I love the fact that Troy fights back. That gives us some empowerment. Um, you know, I mean, it does show that Troy is kind of. Sort of almost rescuing herself, kind of, rather than having Picard rescue her or Riker. Uh, but, and, and it's really important that Troy wants answers. It shows that she wants answers to what happened to her, which is good. Um, but asking her to have her mind scanned again, I was like, mm. also by some of the people that are basically involved in the crime, the Ulians. I guess you could argue that's like a medical, like a metaphor for a medical examination. I mean, maybe. Oh, I was
0: going to say a, a rape trial. I mean, that's what it makes me think of. It's exactly the kind of trauma that you know women who've experienced sexual assault. If it does go to if it does go to trial, you know, having to go through it all again, literally, you know, bringing it all out, talking about it all again and again, the kind of re-traumatizing effect of that, and that's one of the one of the reasons again that often uh, women don't report rape is that they know that they're going to have to go through that very painful experience, and ultimately their chances of success are. Are slim. That's sort of what it made me think of, that probe. But it's interesting in the episode that Ulians are sort of saying, let's do the probe. Picard, I think, is kind of saying, I'm not going to force her to do that. if She doesn't want to. That's, you know, that's totally up to her. And, I, and, and if anything is sort of saying, is pushing against it, you know, it's kind of saying it's a bad idea. And we do see the probe itself is very traumatic. You know, she's crying. Uh, she's, she's, you know, re-experiencing, um, that trauma. Strikingly different to Star Trek Nemesis, where basically the same scenario plays out. Again, Troy is kind of telepathically assaulted. And almost the, I mean, the innumerable problems with Star Trek Nemesis, and I think the way the sexual assault is handled is is definitely one of them. But almost even worse than the actual assaults themselves in that film, or the assault in that film, because there's a second one, which is a deleted scene, um, is the scene that immediately follows where Troy goes down to sickbay. She has the kind of medical examination. She's in a real state, you know, emotionally. She says to Picard she wants to be relieved of duty. And Picard says, no, I need you uh, at your post. And furthermore, and he starts this sentence, which he never gets to finish, where he basically says something like, if you can endure further assaults like this, then we might be able to. And then he gets beamed away. So we never quite find like where exactly he was going. But the strong implication is he's sort of saying this is actually useful, this is going to give us a an in to our enemy somehow, because we've got a link with them. Which of course turns out to be true because it is because of that link that Troy is able to do her kind of Ouija board <laughs> uh tactical station thing with Wharf and 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 break through the cloak on the, the Riemann ship. Um so in a way, I suppose Picard turned out to be right, but it's just it's it's such an unPicard thing to say to say to this woman who's and and it's in such stark contrast to in violations where he behaves. I think we say quite well as the captain in that situation. He's trying to sort of um, it's a difficult um, situation to be in, but he's he's trying to sort of resolve it appropriately and so on. And he but he's also very mindful of Deanna's feelings and her own needs. Very different to say the way that Janice Rand is treated in The Enemy Within and the extent to which, you know, Kirk and Spock and everyone seem kind of oblivious to sort of what she's been going through. I think, I think Picard is definitely better on that front. And, and we see that actually, again, in um, a matter of perspective when Riker's being accused of rape, that Picard is quite, um, there's one point where he sort of says, it's not appropriate for me to talk to you about this. You know, he's he's quite, it's, he's obviously read a manual on like how to deal with these kind of situations. He's kind of, he's had his training one way or another and he seems to know what to do.
1: What I would say is that at the end of Violations he has this line where he kind of basically says there's a rapist in all of us which I was a little like is there? I mean <laughs> like oh well this is just part of human nature I'm like hmm?
0: <laughs> yeah that's kind of it feels like a heartback back to the enemy within somehow and this sort of idea of you know Yeah, yeah.
1: I actually, it's inconsistent writing isn't it? And in a way that's kind of what happens with Janeway later on in Voyager in retrospect she says some really good things. Well, she says one or two good things in that episode. And then she says other things. And you're like, are we talking about the same character here? You know, like, is this the same approach?
0: Well, there's the the, the line she has. I mean, I think that episode is is pretty irredeemable, to be honest. But the, the one line that she has, that I think is great in that episode, is the guy says to her, are you really going to throw away this whole trade deal on the basis of one woman's allegations of, you know, assault? And she just looks at him and is like... Yes, uh, that's that's the good line. That's that's the, that's the Jane we want to see. Um, but I think you're right. In the rest of that episode, she's not exactly um, quite up to scratch. But Picard, I would say, is generally. I mean, you know, we see Picard's this kind of moral. Um, you know, deeply moral guy. Um, and I think definitely he, he certainly seems very concerned with proprietary, with propriety and kind of dealing with things appropriately compared to Kirk in the enemy within, compared to Kirk, even in, um, Wolf in the Fold, when Scotty's accused of, uh, basically, you know, murdering these, these various women, uh, at least one of them, I think heavily implied to be a sex worker. Um, and there it feels very much like, it's all about like, how can we prove that Scotty didn't do it? Rather than kind of any sort of sense of, um, maybe we should investigate this and find out because, you know, obviously we know, okay, it's Star Trek, Scotty didn't do it. But from Kirk's perspective, he's got to, it ought to be at least, there, there ought to be a kind of formal process, I think, there to kind of work out. So sort of what's happening? Picard, I think, does a lot better in violations. The one thing I don't like about violations, though, is the fact that, um, because of this guy that, you know, the guy who's doing the manipulation and so on, Uh, because he's the one doing the probe, he actually, and this ties into the Voyager episode, um, and this idea of like false accusations, he creates a false memory for her so that she implicates the wrong person. So she actually accuses his father of rape because he has this kind of anger towards his father. Um, so it's a very worrying situation where when Troy is essentially asked to give testimony in this rape trial, effectively, she actually says something that is not true and blames the wrong person. So in some ways you could say it, it kind of, again, reinforces this idea that these accounts are not to be believed or that they can be manipulated or that they can be, you, you know, in Seven and Nine's case, in retrospect, the, you know, is she mixing up something that happened to her when she was a Borg and actually accusing this man of doing something to her that never happened? You, you know, there's this kind of very problematic um idea that somehow these women's accounts are not, genuine or not trustworthy and actually what solves the case in violations is data and geordie doing a bit of kind of sort of old-fashioned detective work and working out well this person was here at this date and this thing happened then and you know piecing the bits you know putting the pieces together and saying okay it has to be that one because he's the only one who was there on all these occasions um it's not troy saying i know what happened i remember it this was my experience
1: there's just something kind of, well, I mean, not so much violations, I guess, but in retrospect, especially, there is something kind of disturbing about the fact that because J- um, Seven of Nine has been subject to Borg implants and Borg experimentation, that she somehow would, like, not be able to tell the difference between a real memory and a fabricated one. I don't know. I just felt, it felt like it was an example of if they didn't, don't know if they necessarily meant to write this, but is an example of somebody who perhaps maybe had been like a metaphor of someone who had been a victim of trauma before, and therefore is not believed of, a, of of an actual current case of trauma.
0: Well, Tuvok basically says that I think at one point doesn't he? He 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 makes some comments about how she's been brutalized by the Borg and therefore she's almost an unreliable witness by definition because she's kind of. Yeah, as if, as if you were sort of saying that someone with a mental health issue or something like that is therefore not to be believed if they make an accusation. It's a very worrying sort of conversational train that goes on there, I think, about about whether to believe Seven or not.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's this very good um, TV series on Netflix, which is actually based on a true story, which I'd recommend everybody seeing, called Unbelievable. It's a short series. It's like eight episodes. Uh, um, it stars Tony Collette um, as a detective um, and she's one of the great actresses in it. The fact that there's a whole range of really brilliant actresses in it, um, which sadly I cannot remember all their names, which is terrible. Uh, But there's an, it's an example of people not being believed and people and people, how people are believed. And it, it sort of contrasts the different experiences victims have, you know, when they're believed by the police and believed by the people around them. And when they're not believed by the police and the people around them. And there's one particular character who isn't believed um, and a, a lot of it she's not believed because one she doesn't behave like a traditional victim should behave she's not behaving in the mode that everyone expects her to behave um, uh, but also it's because of her background she's a child from care you know she's she's grown up in situations where she's been abused uh, she's developed this quite tough um, I mean she's very vulnerable she's a very vulnerable person but she's developed this kind of tough exterior and um, although she seems quite tough, she's actually incredibly like um, vulnerable and really needs support in this moment. But she's not getting it because she's not behaving like everyone thinks she should behave. And um, because of that, because of her background, she's not believed. And I watched that series earlier this year. It's brilliant. I would really recommend watching it. Like a, m- a couple months ago, I watched it. Um And then I watched this episode of Voyager and I thought, this is kind of like the same story. Like Seven of Nine isn't really believed because she's, she's been the victim of trauma before. Also, one of the things that really struck me as interesting is somebody, I can't remember who it is, some character right at the beginning, when she reacts um violently to being touched by this arms dealer, alien arms dealer, um, she, you know, later on, somebody says in a briefing, somebody says, you know, he, he didn't really, he didn't, he didn't do anything. And she just basically punched him to the floor pushed him to the floor. And Balana sort of pipes up and says, well, he didn't, he didn't do nothing. You know, she, she says something like, he got close to her and he touched her or something. So Balana is quite aware of it. Balana's like, you know, he invaded 709's space, personal space, and she felt threatened. And what's interesting to me is that everybody in the entire crew could use, some sort of training, <laughs> because even the doctor it takes the doctor a long time to pick up the pick up on the fact that like seven of nine is anxious and unsettled, and that she's flinching when he's coming near her, and I'm thinking you're a doctor for God's sake, like you're programmed to be a doctor. Like I don't understand. <laughs> I mean, the the entire episode, I think the way the crew treats seven of nine is pretty horrendous, and it's an, actually a great metaphor for how victims of sexual assault can be treated. How they can be disempowered by the society around them, by their friends, by their family, by their co-workers, by the legal system. It'd be perfect, it's a perfect metaphor for that. In fact, it's a brilliant like illustration of that right up to the point where it's like, oh no, actually it isn't really a case of sexual assault. And I'm like, oh wait, wait, hang on, hang on. You were doing so well. And then you got to that point where you're like, actually this whole thing's like a false memory. Like what? Like, I couldn't quite believe that's where the episode was going. I was like, what's going on? And then, you know, we're all supposed to feel guilty at the end because this innocent man who was accused of some sort of violation, you know, was innocent all along and he paid the price, you know. Um, When false accusations are really, really rare, there's a lot less actual false accusations of rape or sexual assault than people would believe based on popular culture or based on, you know, people accusing people of false reporting. Basically, I think people's fear of being falsely accused is much wider and bigger than the actual reality. The number of people falsely accusing people of rape is really small compared to the amount of people who actually have been raped or sexually assaulted. So, but there seems to be more kind of, stuff in media about people falsely accusing people then is justified based on the statistics well and we get
0: that in star trek again of course with a matter of perspective which is i mean aside from anything else i think is a wildly kind of offensive title for an episode that is, is ultimately about well it's not really about sexual assault but that is a big element of it is did this sexual assault take place or not um And that's a very strange episode because again, you get this huge question mark hanging over Riker where he says he didn't rape her. Um, she says he did. Uh, Troy says, Oh, both of you is telling the truth as you experienced it. I mean, what the hell is that supposed to be? Because that is the most alarming uh, line in that entire episode. And everyone just sort of shrugs that off as if that's kind of par for the course. Well, I don't, you know, that's not really good enough. I mean, Yeah, there might be some levels of ambiguity, but I mean, this is a pretty serious allegation that's being kind of brushed aside as it's just a matter of perspective. You know, it doesn't really, you know, you can't say one way or another whether he he raped her or not. I mean... And that is a huge thing to say about one of our lead characters. But the weird thing is the episode then just kind of drops it because the episode is much more interesting, you know, why did the space station blow up and what was going on with those what's-it waves and, you know, and also doing this kind of whole Rashomon thing with these different perspectives because it's all about the kind of formal structure of the episode somehow. Um, this really key uh ambiguity at the centre of it kind of gets sidelined, but it's it's a, a very bizarre one. And again, it's that kind of sense of, you know, oh no, poor old Riker, he's been falsely accused. A bit like with Scotty, you know, Wolf of the Fold. Poor old Scotty, he's a nice guy. Even though the episode goes out of its way to tell us that he's become a kind of raging misogynist because of <laughs> some random accident that happened at work. Um, he's a nice guy, he just needs, uh, you, you know, to find the right woman sort of thing and and, and he'll be fine. It's, it, there, there are these weird... Very, very, I think Star Trek sometimes unintentionally does send some very strange messages. And Retrospect is absolutely the the episode that is the most uncomfortable, I think, to watch because it's it's so earnest. It's like, you know, it's like a kind of after school special of like, you know, now pay attention and don't believe those people who tell you they've been assaulted because they're probably making it up. And it's like the episode thinks it's doing a valuable job of like, you know, Star Trek doing kind of social issues. But it's just so... Spectacularly on the wrong side of the issue, <laughs> it's kind of you know, it's, it's 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 almost unwatchable. It's so bizarrely kind of out of uh, kilter somehow. And and there's an interesting element of it. I mean, I would recommend um, uh, Darren Mooney's blog. You know, he 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 did this thing where he, he's gone through every single Voyager episode and written about them. And he wrote a lot about about this episode and the Satanic Panic, as it was called, that was going on in the United States at this time, which is not so much about sexual abuse, I don't think, but about this kind of idea of people who said they'd uh, been in a satanic cult and these kind of stories and the police were investigating and then found out that the memories were not real. So there's a kind of context at the time uh, to where this storyline is coming from, I suppose. But it's just so problematic from the perspective of you, you know, it's it's almost the anti-Me Too episode because it's the episode that says, uh, rather than saying, you know, tell your story and we'll believe you, even if you can't go through the courts and get any kind of justice, it's basically saying, yeah, we we, we were wrong to believe this woman uh, and she doesn't know what she's talking about and she's confused and, you know, it never happened. Um, and we, we should have just sort of dismissed the whole thing to begin
1: with. One of the things that really bothered me about Retrospect was uh, the fact that, like the way that, Seven's trauma is actually handled. I mean, even if it's not like, even if she hasn't been violated by this alien arms manufacturer, she has been traumatized. So she's at least traumatized through being a Borg. And there's no, I kind of acknowledgement of the, the fact that she might need any support or help with that at the end of the episode. You know, it's like her trauma is her previous trauma is inconvenient because it caused her to have this false memory which then caused the death of this arms dealer you know supposedly innocent man who let's be honest doesn't behave very innocent he's awful
0: i mean for a start he's like the ultimate mansplainer but he's he's just generally rude and and obnoxious and you know, not to say that he deserves to be accused of... of uh, I mean, again, we should probably say it's not explicitly sexual assault. It's kind of, as Star Trek typically, it's kind of allegorical. It's it's a violation. It's something it's to do with violation. the nanoprobes yeah. or whatever. But there is this sense that it happens while she's unconscious. It's slightly unclear. There's definitely kind of uh, a, a, a very strong parallel allegorically yeah. being drawn with a sexual yeah. assault. Yeah,
1: And I mean, the fact that the doctor tells her how to feel... Um, the fact that he's not a qualified counsellor and yet he decides to like try his hand. It's almost like experimental, like, oh, I want to develop my programming. I'm going to try and be a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a counsellor. And I'm like, this is, this is, if we ever needed Troy, this is when we need Troy. Do you know what I mean, I feel like they need a counsellor on board Voyager. I mean, um, so that, that's a problem. And then also the problem with the Wolf in the Fold and a matter of perspective is that we know that Scotty and Riker didn't sexually assault or kill these people because they're like series regulars, so they're not going to be doing that. And, you know, so there's that kind of idea that, like, whether or not it was a crime of, you know, murdered women or misogyny or whether it's, like, rape or sexual assault is kind of immaterial eventually. It kind of becomes less serious and less important because we know it's our favoured series regulars, you know, the men that we're supposed to look up to and care about the heroes of the show who are being accused. If it was some random crewman you know, who everybody liked and seemed nice, but wasn't like Riker, then it might be more of a serious crime or a serious situation. Because then we think, well, it might be possible because they're not going to get rid of Riker and they can't make Riker a rapist. Do you know what I mean? So they can not do that because he's like number one, you know, he's like the second in command of the Enterprise, right? The starship of the fleet, you know? So whereas in Deep Space Nine, you have more shades of grey, you know? So... Sisko does do some questionable things, not sexual assault, but he does do some questionable things in the series, you know, especially when it comes to like the Dominion War. Um, but, you know, we have these characters who, I mean, even Descartes, right, who I think we can all say Descartes is a villain, but Dukat's one of the best villains in Star Trek because he doesn't think he's a villain. He thinks he's the hero. And also Descartes shows a lot of love towards his daughter. I would argue that it's a sort of selfish, narcissistic love, but you know he does occasionally do things that are not necessarily things that you would say are completely morally wrong. Um, but at the same time, he's doing these other things, like in "Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night," um, he's, he you know he sexually harasses Kira, um, and we find out that he sexually harasses and desires Kira because he actually like her mother was his her mother was his sex slave, which. When I found that out, like when I first watched that episode as a teenager, I was like, no, no, please don't go here. Uh, please don't go there. Like, you know, this is really, really weird. Like, oh, this is horrible. Um, The fact that you're going to like desire the daughter because you've had the mother, blah, right? But he, it's, and then he calls up Kira on her mother's birthday to sort of rub it in Kira's face. I mean, that's pretty cruel. But that brings up a whole load of other sort of questions about um, consent that I think that episode does actually kind of do quite well. I think this episode does, does sort of sexual abuse quite well. Like it's implied that Kira's mother loves him and is in this relationship lovingly, but how, how, how much can she love him when she can't really freely consent to it? Like she's a Bajoran, he's a Cardassian, he's in a position of power. He has military, um, his military power over her. There's always the threat of violence. He also holds the f- fate and safety of her family in his hands. And so you got a question. How much can she, is it more coercion? Does she have the freedom to consent? And I also think there's a really interesting, um, moment where he picks Kira's mother out because she's got this scar on her face. He so picks her out of a lineup of women who actually have just literally been grabbed out of the station haven't they really and dressed up in these fancy dresses and thrown in this room like you were going to be the comfort women for these these high ranking Cardassian soldiers and generals and officials and kira's mother has this scar on her face and you know Descartes basically could choose any pretty woman but he chose he chooses the one with the scar and i think part of it is it's there's something sort of doubly creepy about that because it's this idea of bestowing mercy on her.
0: Which is Ducat's thing for the Bajorans, isn't it? It's always, you know, oh, I could have killed more of them. I could, you know, I I'm I'm the benevolent dictator, basically. It's kind of it taps into that almost. Because it's all about his ego. And he stages this whole thing, because there's the other Cardassian who like recites the line to Kira that he's about to use and he's basically done this whole routine over and over again with these women. I mean it's it's absolutely it's a really cringy, uncomfortable episode. Um, to cut basically is, is Prince Andrew, <laughs> essentially, isn't he? You know, the guy who, you know, and, and he can, he can say, Clever, Oh, well. cleverer you know, than Prince
1: Andrew, though. Let's be honest. Uh,
0: yeah, probably cleverer than Prince Andrew. Uh, <laughs> he
1: wouldn't give, he wouldn't you, give you an know, interview like the, that. <laughs> the
0: guy who can say, Oh, well, you know, these women are just brought to me. You know, I don't know anything about them or whatever. I mean, you, you know, Prince Andrew would probably, you, you know, in th- those situations, so we've got these stories coming out about Jeffrey Epstein, you know, trafficking these girls, basically. And Prince Andrew just sort of saying, you know, well, you know, I just say, well, I don't know why. I can't remember why he, he claims he hasn't met them. It, clearly he hasn't met them because there are photographs, right? But presumably he would say, oh, I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know how they came to be here. I didn't know how old they were. I didn't know. Do you know what I mean? I didn't know any of this stuff, basically. Um, and I suppose there's that thing. And wrongs darker than death or night, I think, is interesting because they use the phrase comfort women to describe them. Comfort women... Uh, were the Japanese sex slaves basically of the Second World War? So, as often with DS9, I thought
1: they were the Chinese sex slaves.
0: Yeah, sorry, uh, for the Japanese army, for the I mean, Japanese they were the Chi- yeah. Chinese women that were being um, taken by the Japanese army. So, uh, absolutely taken into slavery in a sense. Now, the DS9 episode is sort of trying to do something a bit more ambiguous in a sense because there's a degree not exactly of consent because they do just get picked out there's that guy who says right you 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 and takes them but kira certainly is very hostile towards her mother because she feels that she's kind of um gone along with it somehow and kira of course gets an out you know because it's this very awkward situation where they're like okay so kira's gone back in time or gone back into this whatever it is a vision or whatever we know we can't have just as we can't have Riker be a rapist. We can't have Kira be a sex slave. So she has to a find the Cardassian who's going to get drunk and not be able to perform that evening, and then get herself in trouble and get thrown out of the kind of uh sort of DS Nine harem and into the you know the other side of the station where she can you know get involved in the, the menial work, whatever that we've seen before. So the episode sort of is is constantly sort of skirting around. These issues in quite a kind of, um I think it's quite cleverly done in a way. I mean, we talked about it before in relation to the Jerry bags and the Channel Islands and these, you know, collaborators, women who are fraternising with the enemy and this kind of thing, because it is sort of playing it out that way. But it is also very much showing that element of coercion, that lack of freedom, that terrible situation that those women are in and how much they're being manipulated by those with power over them, how much that power is being abused one way or another. And it shows, I suppose, an interesting element of it. I mean, one of the things, if we look at kind of rape culturally, is the extent to which, you know, sexual violence and other forms of violence are often closely related. So you do get kind of rape as a weapon of war. You do get situations in, in war where um it's almost sort of expected. You know, we talk about raping and pillaging. Um there is that kind of sense of it's not surprising that the occupation is associated with sexual violence. And there are repeated references in, in Duet, for example, there is, there's a description of women raped in front of their children, I think by the Cardassians. Uh, in the, there's a Voyager episode where one of the guys who has joined the Marquis says the reason was that his girlfriend was raped by some Cardassians. So there's this kind of idea of these kind of like brutal soldiers raping women, um, as being a sort of part of that part of living under the Cardassians basically is is the experience of rape. Um, You know, just as it was again at various times, you know, in the second world war, that was the fear uh, I think for Germans when the Russians came in, you know, the Germans were desperate to be um, conquered by the, uh, you know, by the Americans and not the Russians because they thought that their chances were much better, basically, and particularly when it came to sexual violence, huge, uh, widespread sexual violence perpetrated by the Russians against those people. Um, so I think it's interesting that, that, that Deep Space Nine taps into that sort of sense of rape, not just as, and sexual assault, not just as something that is a sort of individual personal story, but as something that is a kind of social phenomenon, almost, that's in certain situations.
1: I think where this episode falls down for me is that it's this idea that Kira's learned something at the end of it. Like she had to go back and see this, you know, she had to go back and experience it, despite the fact that surely she must have been propositioned during the occupation herself. Because when, you know, that that episode where it goes back to the beginning of Odo and her meeting and Odo comes and I think he's standing next to her, he sits down next to her while she's eating. um, And she immediately thinks he's propositioning her for sex. So she's obviously like either heard about it or seen it or someone's done it before. Um So the idea that she wouldn't necessarily know about comfort women is definitely not true. The fact that she thinks of all of them as collaborators and she blames her mother more than she blames Ducat, which I actually think is, is kind of a good example of victim shaming. But the fact that she has to have all this experience in order to learn something and, there's a common thread, and I have to say it's not as represented as much in Star Trek as it is in other culture, um, in other TV shows. So well done, Star Trek, for not doing this so much. Um, but there's this common thread in popular culture that, um, you can learn through suffering, you know, and in particular, I'm thinking of Game of Thrones or Westworld, where rape transforms a character to emerge stronger from it, you know, like, like Sansa and Game of Thrones spoiler alert for anyone who's not watched game of thrones um you know she becomes this like queen of the north because you know she's had this horrific experience where she's been systematically tortured and raped um, and sexually abused and sexually harassed and treated like a sex object uh, or, or like a pawn by all the men of power around her um to westworld where the main character the main female character becomes this like strong empowered vigilante um Because she's experiencing, so she's basically a robot, experiencing the same sexual assault day after day after day after day. And that's just not true. It's just not real. Like, obviously, some women, maybe maybe they emerge, you know, stronger from having gone through some sort of trauma. But don't we all just wish that people could be stronger and more empowered without having to do it through trauma? You know, like, I mean... In real life, victims should not be assumed to be like, you know, gaining something knowledgeable and important, um, and gaining experience from being like the victim of a sexual assault or a rape. You know, the idea that like actually a lot of times these experiences affect someone for the rest of their lives, you know, and they are like, you know, a wound that doesn't really ever heal or takes a long time to heal. Um, and so the idea that like someone you know, ha- is, has this traumatic experience. Um, this violence is perpetrated against them and then they gain some sort of valuable knowledge from it is, um, quite dangerous, I think. And luckily Star Trek doesn't really do that. However, they don't really show the fallout of any of this <laughs> either. I mean, I guess the closest thing we see is Ash Tyler, um, or to Paul in Enterprise because there's that episode fusion where she's mind violated. And then there's the subsequent episodes after that where she has this. Um, you know, syndrome as a result of that, that, um, uh, attack. And she's actually shamed for it in her own society, which is another good example of somebody, um, like contracting an STD, for instance, from rape and then, or like, I know it was supposed to be a metaphor for AIDS, wasn't it? Um, and then facing the shame of having that illness as a result of, um, that attack. And, one thing I think that's interesting is that they, we, they describe to polls, uh, uh, sort of reaction to the fact that she's been violated. Um, and it's a very good episode in the sense that she does consent, but then changes her mind. Um, and it does go to show that like, you know, just because someone consents earlier in the situation, if they change their minds and they say no, um, then they've withdrawn their consent and you, you should stop. Um, so, but despite the fact they show all of that, they don't actually, Kind of show the fallout for her of the actual attack. I guess there's the scene at the end of the episode, isn't there? But it comes very much about Archer confronting Valaris. Is it Valaris?
0: Valeris is the one in uh, The Undiscovered Country.
1: She's also violated. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we can talk about that in a minute. I mean, no, um, I don't know name? what the guy...
1: No, I do know his name. This Hang sort on. of
0: creepy guy, who again is one of these sort of creepy nice guy characters. I feel like it, it, there is a sort of pattern there that, you, you know, the, the guy in Violations, who's kind of initially sympathetic because his dad is, is mean to him. Um, the guy in uh, Man of the People... Who, who seems like a sort of upstanding guy? That Vulcan guy who seems like a sort of decent. Tolaris. There you go, Tolans. Yeah. <laughs> Very sad. Um, seems again like a sort of nice guy, and then something nasty happens. You know, it's it's that kind of that does seem to be the type uh, the way Star Trek presents it, which is is interesting in itself in some ways.
1: I would have thought Tolaris could have been prosecuted. So he's a Vulcan, and he, I know he's a member of this offshoot of Vulcans that believe in emotion and mind map. By melding and all that sort of stuff but um vulcan is a planet in the federation surely there are some interplanetary fed- federation laws you know like a charter of alien rights or whatever um and you know he's on a ship i know it's not really starfleet but it's kind of starfleet isn't it early starfleet he's on a ship run that's run by the federation oh no the federation doesn't exist then does it but still, they're all allies with each other. I guess other. that's the thing.
0: Yeah, the Federation doesn't exist, so they're, I feel like the Vulcans, they could have
1: prosecuted him.
0: You'd think they would want to because the Vulcans seem to be very keen to get anything on these whatever they are, sort of separatists that they can. Um, but it, it, I suppose it's interesting that episode. It, it does. It, it's funny you mentioned because
1: um, surely he's but, a danger uh, to other people.
0: Yeah, exactly. And again it's an episode where they sort of just leave it there like, okay, you go on your way. And even in violations, I'd say, I mean, there is the kind of promise of a trial for that guy on his home planet. But as far as we know, the enterprise isn't going to stick around. Troy's not going to be asked to testify. Do you know what I mean? They're kind of just leaving them to it. There's this sort of there is this sort of weird sense that at the end of the episode, okay, everyone just off you go. We won't we won't deal with this. We won't talk about this. We're kind of do you know what I mean? It kind of not quite gets brushed under the rug, but it's sort of we don't really see the the final part of that process, let's put it that way. We don't we don't really see the kind of um, consequences, the the sort of legal consequences, the kind of um, kind of apparatus on that side. But it's interesting also with those Vulcan storylines. I mean, one thing we should maybe talk about is that there is obviously a difference. There are two ways that Star Trek deals with this kind of broad topic of sexual assault and sexual violence. One is literally. So something like the, the comfort women in Deep Space Nine and the, and the scenarios of rape in the, by the Cardassians and so on. These are kind of literal example. In the original series, I feel like you do get kind of literally, literal examples. So you have Janice Rand in The Enemy Within. You have, um, uh, sort of scenes of at least heavily implied sexual assault in Return of the Archons. Uh, you have similarly uh, Gamesters of Triskelion. Surely there's a woman who's been assaulted by a kind of um, uh, manifestation of uh, Don Juan. There's um, Day of the Dove, a really sinister moment where uh, Chekhov is kind of threatening uh, Klingon woman with sexual assault. But it's always quite direct. Whereas in later Star Trek, it's often treated more allegorically and particularly... As a kind of psychic thing. So I suppose this idea, and maybe it's a way of, you could see it as, as someone might say the thing about sexual assault is it's not just a physical thing. It's an emotional thing. It's a, it's a mental thing. Do you know what I mean? That the trauma is, is mental. So it kind of makes sense that Star Trek deals with it as a mental thing. But so you have this kind of allegorical treatment. So in Voyager, it's to do with the Borg nanoprobes and they don't really go much into that because that's a little bit wishy washy. But generally speaking, it's to do with a kind of mind control or a mind invasion. Um, and that probably does start, well, I don't know which Aired earliest, but certainly in kind of Star Trek chronology, you know, Valeris in The Undiscovered Country, that scene with Spock is the most uncomfortable scene in the whole film because he's, you know, he's really forcing himself on her in a way that is extremely uncomfortable. And it's not explicitly sexual, but I think the way that Kim Cattrall plays it and the kind of even the way that Leonard Nimoy plays it in a way, because he has not exactly shame for what he's doing, but he he seems traumatised even by doing it to her. Do you know what I mean? And there's and there's all the reaction shots around the bridge of Ahura and Scotty and everyone kind of, you know, almost with their hands over their mouths, like they can't bear to watch it because it's this awful thing. And and definitely the way that Kim Cattrall plays, it, I think, as a sort of sexual uh, undercurrent in a sense to to what's going on there, uh, and it's very very uncomfortable to watch and I think it's really that that sort of Enterprise picks up on with this idea of a mind meld as a kind of um, as an invasion as a sort of I guess a kind of penetration of one person's mind by another um, and that is quite effective and there is this sort of interesting thing about the Vulcans and sexuality the Vulcans being so repressed they are sort of the ultimate nice repressed nice guys uh, you know you get even in, in Voyager with Blood Fever you get Vorik being you know really um, inappropriate with Belana and so on and ending up in this um Weird situation where she, you know, Tuvok is, is sort of, um, doesn't Tuvok creates this sort of, um, or is it the doctor? One of them creates this, uh, like Vulcan on the holodeck. Maybe it's the doctor who creates a Vulcan on the holodeck for this there's, there's all this sort of weird stuff going on. And then this idea that is going to have to sleep with Tom. Um, and Tom is actually the one guy who, Tom, the guy who you'd sort of think is the sort of frat boy on the show. Do you know what I mean? Is the kind of slightly, uh, morally, sexually, questionable, uh, guy is the one who's actually saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take advantage of you. You know, it's almost like he's saying, you're drunk. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to wait till the morning and ask you then sort of thing when Bilana is like screaming at him that she wants him to do it. So I think that's, that's another, it, it, it's weird. Like, why, why is it always, it always seems to circle around the Vulcans or, or, or other telepaths, I suppose, but particularly Vulcans. There's something kind of particularly creepy about these, these guys. And it's always guys who are supposedly emotionless who suddenly come out with this kind of you know, intense, um, very pushy, don't know how to take no for an answer kind of thing.
1: I mean, it's a little bit like that scene in Plato's st- Stepchildren where, um, Ahura and Kirk are forced to kiss each other, but then so are Spock and Chapel. And I think what's really interesting about that is, I mean, aside from the whole Ahura, Kirk, um, you know, interracial kiss, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff, um, the thing about Chapel and Spock is that Chapel does actually like Spock. You know, um and Tom does like Balana, you know, Balana does like Tom. But it's that trope of, like, two characters that like each other and have been circling around each other. I mean, I know Spock doesn't have feelings for Chapel, but, like, you know, but the only way it can work is if they're somehow forced to resolve their feelings by being forced to have sex with each other through some alien force. Against their will, yeah. Against their yeah. will. But really, is it against their will? Because they kind of want it. But no, but it is kind of, because they kind of don't. Like, I'm like, this is not really kind of cool, because that's not how, like, consenting adult relationships should happen, you know? And the fact that chapel um does like probably would love to kiss spock any day of the week but she doesn't want to kiss him in this context she doesn't want to be forced to do it in front of everybody you know where she's not consenting to it and spock isn't consenting to it and surely she doesn't want to kiss spock if he's not consenting like you don't want that to happen i mean like you know who wants to be with somebody that doesn't want to be with them you know i mean it's a good question actually because you find in countless romantic comedies there's characters that you know are constantly pushing somebody to be with them when you're like Dude, she doesn't want to be with you. Like go find someone else who does want to be with you. Um but there's these big gestures or you know, these big sort of um, you know, scenes where, you know, like we're in this prison cell and we're gonna to have to force to kiss each other, otherwise they're going to, I don't know, remove our fingers or something. So like now we're gonna to have to resolve it. I don't find any of that remotely romantic romantic. I think that um is actually kind of breeding a culture of like non-consent like and i think that's actually kind of bad it's kind of dangerous the interesting thing i would say though is that we have to question ourselves like in like us as viewers like our reactions have our reactions to these sort of episodes always been this way or is it because of the me too movement and because of the you know third fourth wave of feminism um, and because of like awareness now about sexual assault and um how are we actually seeing these episodes differently? like it's our reactions then versus our reactions now? like I will admit there were things about the preview about episodes that bothered me when I was younger, but I don't think I was as critical about the issues, you know I mean, I can't remember seeing retrospect as a teenager, but I do remember seeing violations. I remember being confused and upset by it upset by it and I remember not really want to watch it, not really wanting to watch it again. I remember always thinking. Cat was creepy, but I didn't find him as creepy as I do now after the Me Too movement and after having been an adult woman. Do you know what I mean? Like, so was Star Trek doing the best it was? Was Star Trek doing the best it could do in the time period that it existed in? Is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. And we can certainly read things differently. I mean, when I was saying, say, Profit and Lace. I don't remember loving that episode when it first aired, but I think that's an episode that just gets worse with every passing year in a way. (laughs) And and that attempt to make comedy out of this issue of like coerced sex, essentially, is very uncomfortable. But Deep Space Nine, as much as I love Deep Space Nine, Deep Space Nine does have these sort of uncomfortable areas. I mean, they have this running joke about Vulcan Love Slave, this holodeck programme, which is essentially... Uh, you get a vulcan, a vulcan who doesn't want, to, presumably doesn't want to have sex because she's a vulcan, but is a sex slave. You get the Orion slave girls, you know, they're not just sexy belly dancers. They're slave with, you know, they're slaves. They have, by definition, they have no consent. And I know Enterprise ties itself in knots trying to like say that that wasn't really the case. But, you know, if you're going to call someone a slave girl, you're being fairly upfront about what you're saying there. So I think there are these sort of things that Star Trek has kind of tried to treat rather lightly that actually if you take them a bit more serious and you look into them, they do seem a bit more kind of sinister one way or another. I was just thinking about that episode, Blood Fever. I was just uh, looking through my notes again. It's the doctor who comes up with the holodeck uh, Vulcan, sort of pimping out this like, <laughs> sort of holodeck, Prostitute almost. Uh, but it's Tuvok is the one who basically orders Tom to have sex with Belana I mean, that, and when you're talking about consent, that's the really weird thing. And Tuvok is his superior officer. He kind of has to do what he says. He's saying that this is what's necessary to save her life, but it's a very strange situation where, you know, Tom is basically being, uh, ordered to have sex with someone against his will. And it's only because Vorek turns up and it becomes like a sort of fisticuffs instead that that issue gets taken off the table but you know if Oryk hadn't turned up at that point um, that's what would have happened and yes Tom fancies Bellana, yes Belana fancies Tom and so on but the f- the idea that the first time they sleep together is going to be because he's been ordered by his superior officer that's what he has to do uh, is you know that's going to be uh, make for an awkward conversation in the lift the next so morning if anything it's, you know
1: imagine when the kid morale asks you know how did daddy and mummy meet? <laughs>
0: how did like, you get together yeah okay well yeah, it's no, we don't all talk because about
1: of your uncle Tuvok like oh my god it's horrible it's awful i mean ponfar is a whole nother kettle of fish i feel like that's a whole podcast episode in itself but yeah there's this idea i suppose right that that male vulcan going through ponfar would like inspire ponfar in a female vulcan and then they would kind of like agree to it i don't know or they would consent but there's this implication that they become like crazed right and they can become violent and so, so basically, every seven years, does like a male Vulcan become like a rapist? I mean, like, I hope not. But you're right; it's this, it's this, um, it's this very strange concept about the Vulcans. Basically, are so repressed that the only way they can deal with sex is like to like. Go know. nuts
0: every so. Go often,
1: nuts, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and no basically, boundary. well, like think,
0: yeah. very much like in Return of the Archons, this idea, like the crazy, whatever it is, the Red Hour. Do you know what I mean? They have their red, their Red Hour once every seven years. Well, I suppose the idea is they're always supposed to be coupled up and married, and it's within this sort of, you know, uh, I was going to say loving in, in in a kind of emotionless uh, but mutually supportive environment, and it's kind of. You know, it's, it's, it's accepted within that kind of situation, but obviously we see it when it goes wrong and when that isn't possible one way or another. But I suppose there's this interesting issue about allegory as well. I mean, the allegory in some ways, it also, when you say, do we look back on these episodes differently? Is it partly because we see different things in them where, where there's an ambiguity or a kind of, um, where the episode requires to be read allegorically? those meanings can change slightly. So something like The Child, for example, would be one of those episodes where some people say that's an episode where Troy is violated and is the victim of sexual assault. Now, I don't think the episode actually really goes into that very much. There, There is this kind of discussion about whether to sort of abort the baby effectively or what to do about it and, and about that. But it seems to me it's more a kind of abortion debate than it is about rape. And there's no sense that she doesn't seem really distressed in the way she is in the other episodes at having been put in this situation, if you know what I mean. It's much more about, oh, the baby and looking after the child and getting, you know, what exactly is going on and the kind of mystery of it all um, somehow. And, the and the and you know, there's this emphasis on choice and the pregnancy and so on, but not really on the idea of, you know, what is it that happened to her while she was unconscious that night that she knows nothing about. We get Riker being kind of quite... um Uh, possessive in a way and sort of saying who's the father i want to know what's going on but we don't really get a sense of of that as a sort of assault storyline for troy and yet for a lot of people going back now and watching that episode i think it's kind of and not necessarily just with the me too movement partly just with the passage of time it we sort of see different problems with it whereas really what it's doing is a kind of immaculate conception no one goes back and reads the bible and thinks you know Wow, uh, you know, God didn't ask for consent from Mary. Uh, he's uh, saying that. <laughs>
1: well, maybe he's they saying do. That, you know. But oh, I was at like, a they carol do, concert. I, I, <laughs> I was at like, a carol concert this Christmas at my local church, singing through the Christmas carols, and I was like, just like a couple of lines popped out here or there, and I just like looked at my husband, like rolled my eyes, like what is this? Um And afterwards, he just said to me, you know, these 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 carol songs are written by men. I mean, there was one line about how very famous carol about how you know so quietly and silently the gift is given basically describing the birth of jesus and i was like when does a woman give birth silently like like you know like um and my husband was like they were written by men (laughs) clara this isn't like
0: christmas carols of real
1: experiences of women's lives in like biblical you know like you know like you know the biblical middle east this is um you know this is actually uh um, a whole bunch of Christmas carols probably written by uptight Victorians or Edwardians, um, uh, <laughs> men. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you could look at everything differently now. That's the point. The point is you could look at everything differently. You could look at your own life in, in the workplace differently. You could think about, um, you know, you could look at films differently. You could look at TV shows differently. I mean, there's has the whole thing recently with Friends, you know, like a bunch of young people started watching Friends and have said, actually, there's like a whole load of stuff in it that's homophobic. I mean, I watched Friends as a teenager and I, that went straight over my head. Like, I didn't see any of that. But now watching it now, I'm sure I could, there'd be things that would be problematic, you know? I mean, I guess that's awareness, you know, once you've let that awareness out of the box you can't put it back in again so like I love the original series that's the series I grew up watching when I was very little I watched it from when I was a young age that was the first series I watched but I can't deny it's a product of its time and it was trying to be forward thinking it was trying to be better than other entertainment in the 60s it was trying to be more inclusive I can see that I can see what Gene Roddenberry was trying to do but once the awareness is out of the box you can't help but look at it with these new fresh eyes post Me Too eyes, um, and then you are seeing stuff that is going to make you uncomfortable. So I guess the question is, do we judge Star Trek with today's awareness or do we judge Star Trek at the time in which it was made, you know, and what they were trying to do at that specific time? And the most recent documentary, What We Left Behind, is very good in addressing that. You know, Iris Stephen Baird does say we did a lot of good, but we could have done more. Um, And looking back, there are things I would have done differently. And I guess that's, that's the best that we can do is look back and reflect and think about how it would change um, the stories for future Star Trek. And I guess we'll see with future Star Trek, whether um, they address some of these ideas better.
0: And by sharing those stories, it kind of gives us a different idea of what is, uh, you know, A, of the reality of these situations, but also of, of the, you know, part of the sharing stories is it makes it, it does help people to empathise. I mean, you know, I joked about the guys who say, oh, now I understand sexual assault because I have a daughter or whatever. But, you know, there is some reality to that, I suppose, in that it helps people to, you know, relate these things to people that they know and to, to to kind of people that they feel they understand. It kind of, it helps maybe build compassion and maybe sharing these stories is kind of important. And I think there is that sort of question of, yeah. So, sort of, I mean, I suppose a lot of what we've been talking about is kind of what was normal at the time and maybe our norms are changing and that's a good thing. And definitely there are things that we go back and we look at and they maybe seem, not that they were necessarily normalised or seen as okay at the time, but they maybe seem worse. I mean, something like, uh, I mean, I talked about Quark in Deep Space Nine, but um, on Dax, for example, Curzon Dax uh, is in a position of responsibility in the Symbiont training, uh, or whatever it is the host training programme. He falls in love as he puts it, or, you know, fancies Jazia, uh, doesn't know what to do about it and fails her from the programme to get rid of her rather than, you know, recusing himself or dealing with that situation or whatever. And that's sort of, yeah, it's, it's not seen as a great thing, but I feel like that's the of thing that these days we might go back and we might think that's that seems worse now somehow the more that we know about these kind of things. Do you know what I mean? You, you might look back on that and think, wow, that is actually pretty... uh Appalling thing to do. Do you know what I mean? To like fail your student essentially because you were having, uh, romantic feelings towards them and you couldn't handle it. Um, and I suppose that's the thing with the Me Too thing is it's not just, it's not just sexual assault. It is also sexual harassment. It is also kind of abuses of power. It is also things like, I mean, uh, relationships that are abusive or coercive or, you know, anywhere there's a kind of abuse of, of power or something like that. I mean, we had the situation recently with that woman, I can't think of her name, who murdered her husband and was recently released from prison because an appeal found that basically she'd been subjected to years of kind of, uh effectively kind of emotional abuse, basically, even though he wasn't physically violent, that it had been a really abusive relationship and that therefore it was understandable that in a, this moment she kind of lashed out and it was, you know, I, I don't know what the judgment was, whether it was that she was, not responsible for our actions or whatever, but it, it it was kind of mitigating factor, and that was very much to do with more recent understandings and the way that our understandings have changed of that kind of abusive situation. And I think we can also recognise that Star Trek has, even if it sometimes failed, it has also tried with these things. I mean, something like Man of the People is a weird episode, uh, and it's kind of hard to know what to make of it. But I think on some level, it's got to be an episode that's sort of about. Coercive control and that kind of abusive relationship, and so on. And we definitely, Troy seems in that episode to be a woman who is in the grip of a very controlling man. Now, he's controlling her in slightly weird sci fi ways. Uh, he, I mean, he's literally dumping his negativity on her, which you could say is a, is a pretty. Uh, straightforward metaphor for a bad relationship if you know what I mean like she's getting all of this guy's negative um, emotions and it's sort of changing her and aging her uh, and 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 making her sick um, and there's you know there's that kind of one of the things I quite like about that episode is that the end you, you know that moment she and Riker have together and she, it's this sort of like thank you for standing by me thank you for supporting me thank you for helping me uh, you know and it did sort of remind me of I mean we Encountered stories in people's real lives, you know, even within the Star Trek community, of people who've been encouraged to leave abusive relationships thanks to the support of other Star Trek fans, and thanks to that sense of kind of um, uh, solidarity, I suppose. And I guess that's a big part of what the Me Too movement is is about: is a raising awareness, but b increasing that sense of kind of solidarity of survivors uh, and allies of survivors as well, I suppose, and just saying, look, we this is not okay. You know, we know this is happening. This is not in any way okay, and we're gonna, we're not gonna shut up about it.
1: Yeah, and I think, like I was saying before, um, not that obviously we're saying that men don't suffer from sexual assault, they do, but that, like we're saying, that the, the sort of numbers show that women suffer from it in far greater numbers. Um, it is a gendered, um, crime, it's a gendered assault, and often, and that actually in Star Trek, the new Star Trek um, series, um, you know, as long as female characters are not seen as disposable um, objects and dramatic tropes, and I'm thinking of Janice, um, Jazz Rand in this case, like who's just, you know, there to be abused almost, um, you know, then we have a situation where we will have the more strong female characters you have on television, you have seen, you know, the more that women are seen like people you know and you don't have that situation where you have a man saying well because I have a daughter um, I now care about victims of sexual assault um you know you have a man care about victims of sec- female victims of sexual assault simply because he sees women as people um who deserve to be respect respected and um you know deserve to be safe in society just like he does um and i think when you see Strong female characters in Discovery that aren't overtly sexualized, like Burnham, for instance. It's really important to see an African American woman, um, you know, treated like a proper multi dimensional character, you know, who's not overly sexualized, isn't playing the submissive or, um, you know, role or isn't a victim. If you see her as an actual person, um, then that changes the way people see African-American, well, should hopefully change the way people see African-American women in society. And I, I, one of the things I loved about the discovery was that the, the fact that the, the, all the female characters do encounter some sort of difficulty at some point, you know, or, or trauma, actually, they all have encountered some type of trauma, but so do the men as well, but like they're, they're treated much more equally. They're in uniforms, You know, they are respected because of their minds as well. They're not overtly sexualized. There isn't the babe character in Discovery like there was in a lot of the other series, as far as I can tell, as far as I can think. Unless, of course, the babe character has now become a man, but I don't think there is. There isn't really a babe character. Um, And that's brilliant, you know, which means there isn't that character that is basically the full. The full disposable character for every time there's a violation, you know there isn't a Troy who's wearing like skimpy clothing or a low cut top who's going to be violated Um and you sort of feel like um if Tilly or Burnham go through some sort of trauma they're going to be supported by the rest of the crew, uh, they're going to be believed and um Tilly is going to support Burnham and you know there's I don't know, I just feel like it's it's just much more forward thinking and it's much more um, contemporary to entertainment. But that's because it's being made now post me too i mean there is that amazing scene in discovery where that mansplainer ends up dead because he's mansplaining <laughs> while he's traveling really fast in some sort of vehicle and as soon as that happened i was like that's a reference to mansplaining right there um yeah. and not that mansplainers should be killed but <laughs> <laughs> but in discovery that was that was like tongue-in-cheek you know it was like yeah. dude don't mansplain to burn him she knows what she's doing oops you're boom you're, puff, yeah. you're exploded um yeah, yeah. so discovery is reacting i think to the me too movement
0: Mm, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Discovery is is definitely sort of post me to Star Trek. And who knows what ways future Star Trek, you know, whether it's Picard, whether it's Section 31, etc., will uh, be inspired by that movement as well. And also how that movement will develop kind of going forward. Um, One final question I just thought we should pose, and I pose this without really having much of an answer to it myself, because I think it's a very problematic aspect of this whole cultural phenomenon, is one of the other things to come out of the Me Too movement is when we've had these revelations coming out about um performers, directors, you, you know, people who've produced a lot of the art that we've enjoyed over many years. Uh, it raises this sort of question of how do we then um look at that art in retrospect? I mean, and the big example is Woody Allen. I mean, I love many of Woody Allen's films. You know, I've seen them hundreds of times. I haven't watched any of them in the last couple of years and I, I don't know whether i would again or not it's a kind of awkward situation a lot of people have said you know i mean a people a lot of actors now won't work with woody allen because of the quite credible allegations that have been made against him um and there's also that sort of question can we go back and is it wrong to enjoy those films especially given some of the dubious content of those films anyway ties into some of the real world allegations now with star trek there are you know as well as we talked about people connected to star trek who've been uh you know, who've experienced sexual assault in various ways. There are people who've been involved in Star Trek who have been guilty, or at least accused of sexual assault in various ways. I mean, um, the guy uh, from the motion picture who played Decker, for example, had some pretty horrific, alle- uh, not just allegations; he admitted them. I think uh, things came out about it that might make you very uncomfortable about him and that character. Uh, just recently, the guy who plays Takuvma in Discovery has had a lot of allegations come out about the way he's treated female students in a class that he taught. What does it do? I mean, in some ways, you you know, these are quite minor characters and they're not particularly likable characters anyway, but I I think it is problematic. I mean, there's, you know, one Star Trek film and I won't go into details because I don't feel this is really my story to tell, but there's an actor in that film who's not, I hasten to add, one of the regular cast members who, you know, I know someone who personally has had a very unpleasant uh, experience along these kind of lines with that actor. And it makes me feel uncomfortable watching that scene because, do you know what I mean? Because you're like, okay, I I, I know what that person is capable of doing in their real life, if you know what I mean. And I think, you know, they, I suppose there's always been these kind of questions around performers and around actors in the media. You know, we do read stories about shocking things that, you know, I don't know, people like Mel Gibson or, you know, whoever it is that have done, whether it's sexual things, whether it's violence, whether it's, you know, whatever it is. And maybe to some extent we can separate these things but is it difficult and is it particularly difficult with Star Trek because Star Trek is something that we love so much as fans do you know what i mean and we identify with and we and we want to you know go to the conventions and meet the people and it's important to us that they seem like decent people and they sort of, that they sort of live up to the values of Star Trek i suppose i mean um at the most recent destination Star Trek convention they had the guy who played the young spock in Star Trek 3 and he said when he got the role Leonard Nimoy basically took him aside and said to him effectively like, you know, you need to understand what a big responsibility this is, not just in terms of your performance, but like for the whole of your life, you know, you're Spock now, you're, you know, one of many, as it turns out now, Uh you, you know, you almost, you sort of owe it to the Star Trek fans to live a good life and be a decent person and not screw it all up, you know? Um So, Leonard Nimoy obviously felt that responsibility that he had to be this kind of upstanding, decent man, which by all accounts he was anyway. So I'm just sort of curious, how does that impact our viewing? Does it change how we view some of those stories that we're familiar with if we find out things about the people who are making them that are uncomfortable truths that maybe, you know, uh, in some ways we, we didn't really want to hear? But the, the thing of the whole Me Too movement is we want to hear these truths. We want to, you know, hear people's stories um, and that that's important.
1: Well, I don't think we want to hear them.
0: Not we want to, that it's important that, that, that we, we want people to be able to share them, I suppose, is what I mean. I
1: think what we want is kind of, yeah, it's kind of immaterial. It's not that I mean, we
0: want to hear them. It's that that's the right thing to do.
1: Yeah. I watched a documentary about, um, the fall of Aleppo. I didn't really want to know. I didn't really want to watch it, but you know, like I feel like I have to bear witness, you know, I have, I should know, you know, I mean, why should I that's get to I live mean, yeah. in blissful ignorance while other people suffer? Um, yeah, it's a complicated question, I suppose, because. Well, one of the things I would say myself personally is I think to myself, has this person committed a crime? Um, and if they have been accused or at least, you know, if it sounds like they have, they have committed a crime and they just haven't, no one can bring them to justice. Like, for instance, Harvey Weinstein, although he has been brought to justice, sort of, um, kind of, maybe not really quite there yet, but, um, you know, is that person still financially benefiting from this thing? Like, if I continue to watch this film, is this person going to, you know, like, if I'm spending money on it, is this person going to financially benefit off their privilege? Um, and, um, you know, g- get the rewards of that having gone and, you know, done some heinous acts or whatever. Um, but then there's cases like, say, for instance, like John Wayne, who, you know, held some racist views, right? But am I ever going to stop, which came out again in, you know, in popular, uh, social media again this year you know people seem to have suddenly discovered that john wayne was racist and i'm like dudes <laughs> how did you not know this it's all with public knowledge but for some reason people suddenly discovered it again and started tweeting about it and it went viral but like john wayne is dead he's not going to financially benefit from his films right now so i think whether or not we watch a john wayne film or whether or not we don't is kind of up to us and obviously i would say you know if engaging in any of this material is causing you to stress You know, making you uncomfortable, making you unhappy. I would not, I would not watch it or I would not read it or like I I wouldn't want people to be uncomfortable with their entertainment. That's not the purpose of entertainment, I I think. Um, although I guess make people aware. I mean, if somebody has been, if somebody's been the victim of sexual assault themselves and they're, and they're going to watch violations and find it distressing, you know, then I wouldn't do that, but you have to be able to separate the art off a little bit from the creator, you know, so like Charles Dickens was horrendous to his wife. You know, he publicly broke the marriage publicly, like after she'd given him loads of years of marriage and many children, he like abandoned her practically. But we're going to stop reading Charles Dickens novels. I mean, like Harlan Ellison, who has wrote City on the Edge of Forever, you know, the, the famous episode of Star Trek that everyone quotes is like their favorite episode, which has all these fantastic themes in it about loving your fellow man. And, you know um sacrifice and has a sweet little love story between you know William Sh- uh, Shatner and the female character um i mean you can google him you know i mean people have accused him of um unpleasant behavior bullying behavior harassment um but what are we going to do about it now you know i mean the guy's dead i think he's dead um so i'm in favor of maybe he's not maybe he's gonna sue me for this podcast um, um but um Let me check. does that mean we should stop watching that episode or does that mean that the themes in that story are not still important themes that don't have resonance yeah, right he is dead you know yeah, the themes right. in that story are good <laughs> themes you know yeah. um some of the behavior of the peace people that you know we like and we idolize is not good it's unsavory behavior it Obviously, if it's going into stuff, stuff like rape and sexual assault, then it's starting to become violent, uh, um criminal behaviour, you know? That's different. But maybe the answer is just not to idolise actors so much. God forbid, you know? Maybe we shouldn't be looking as actors as, like, the moral gods of our universe. Maybe we should be looking to other people. Maybe we should be looking to our politi- politicians to behave better or our environmental activists but maybe we just shouldn't idolize each other too much that's what i would say is maybe we should see that people are human and we shouldn't idolize idolize them we shouldn't worship them i think the worshiping them is the problem i think when you worship people you put them on a pedestal and you make them better and bigger and higher and more brilliant than the general population and they're not they're just people and they're people who have an important job an interesting job a job they have to work hard at but they are actors they're acting You know, like, uh, I I think that's my problem. My problem is that's one of the things I have a real problem with at the Star Trek conventions. That's one of the things where I think I differ from a lot of fans is I don't love these people. It's wonderful to meet them. It's exciting and it's fantastic to see them in the flesh. But they are people and they're not better or more brilliant than you and I, Duncan. They aren't. They're just famous and they're actors, but they are people. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's like you know it's like me assuming that Boris Johnson is a better person than me because he's prime minister i think we all know that's not true but <laughs> like i think people should be you know treated equally and if we start treating people more equally and we stop idolizing people and making them into these mega superstars that are supposed to encompass all our hopes and dreams and our desires and our fantasies um and we don't give them all our worship then we'll stop being so disappointed when they do something truly stupid or or wrong and will also
0: to be honest, uh be protected against some of this kind of behavior. Because as much as, you know, Harvey Weinstein was abusing uh financial and career power, I mean, other people, um I I mean the the, the person that I vaguely alluded to, uh who had an interaction with my friend, um that was very much a situation of of someone abusing their fame you know and and you know you do get situations of celebrities using their the power that comes with being famous and with being adored in that situation um to take advantage of people essentially and that people will go along with something if a celebrity asked them to do it that they wouldn't go along with if anyone else asked them to do it so it's another example of these kind of um this kind of a uh, you know unequal uh, power dynamic one way or another that can be abused easily.
1: It's like that joke that you hear, I don't know if you've heard it, where couples sometimes say, I've never done this, but sometimes you hear a couple say... "Um, uh," (laughs) You're looking behind you to check if your husband can hear. (laughs) Couples sometimes say... um, you know that we have this clause right that we're not allowed to cheat on each other but we would be allowed to cheat if that one famous person would sleep with us you know like i would i once had a boyfriend say to me like if bjork came along and propositioned me you'd have to let me sleep with her even if even even if you know (laughs) you know like we're not going to cheat on each other like we're going to be faithful to each other but if bjork you know and, and you're allowed one male celebrity and i was like no like I know, like, I don't want to sleep with anyone else but you. You're my boyfriend, you know? And the fact that, like, you're thinking about this is worrying me a little bit. Like, no, it's just because they're famous doesn't, doesn't excuse that kind of behavior, but also it doesn't mean they're going to be any better than your own partner, the partner that you love, that you chose, that you're with. Like, I, I guess it's, it's, um, yeah, accepting things from people, accepting behavior from people because they are famous. Um And then I guess you could link that to our obsession with fame, like as fame is this ultimate goal for a lot of people Um to be known, to be seen, to have your life witnessed uh, means that you're worth something and that you are important. And you're not just one drop in the ocean of millions of people who are going to be l- born, live and die. Just like, Billions of people in history. I mean, lots of millions of people in history have achieved things that we'll never know about them. Um, <laughs> because they're just not remembered. Um, so it's about being remembered as well. And I think we, we expect, we expect these people because we have given them this star status. We expect them to embody all the values that we hold, but actually they are their own people and they might have different values or they might also use that power that we've given them and abuse it and um, commit crimes like sexual harassment or sexual assault. Well, that's a
0: sobering note to end on. We do <laughs> a, a note topics, of warning <laughs> for, the, for the next Star Trek convention. I don't, I mean, you know, hopefully, hopefully not. But I mean, I, I take your point generally. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's good to be aware of these things. Good to be aware of these kind of power imbalances and the um, risks really that go along with them potentially. Um, It's been a pleasure as ever, Clara, having you back (laughs) on the podcast, even if it has been a rather um, depressing topic (laughs) for old time's sake, you know. Um, But before we go, uh, why don't you let our listeners know what you've been up to um, in your sort of post-primitive culture uh, time and uh, where they can find out about that and where they can track you down on social media as well.
1: Uh, So you can find me on Twitter at Jean Mc uh i also have my own podcast called the tales we tell which is a podcast exploring women and gender in film television and fiction it's been a bit of a hiatus because i've been moving house but since i've moved and there is a new year coming up 2020 Um, i'm hoping to release some more episodes soon including one with you duncan about uh, Marvel's Jessica Jones so that's exciting so I'd look forward to that you can find the podcast also on Twitter at The Tales Podcast um, and also on iTunes
0: well, thank you again, Clara, for joining me. And I hope it won't be um, such a long wait until we can get you back on the show again sometime.
1: No, that'd be, it would be absolute pleasure to come back. Maybe, maybe we could talk about something a bit more happy. <laughs> yeah,
0: we'll, we'll, we'll look for a cheerier topic next time. Um, but talking about sexual assault and the Me Too movement isn't the only thing, thankfully, we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network.
1: Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. Oh, let me
0: think. What's an interesting Star Trek sound? Phasers? See, that's tough because how do you make a phaser sound? I I don't know if you can make that with the human... Or you can do photon torpedoes. I'll I'll, I'll just be the one that's pew, pew, pew. Oh, pew, pew, (laughs) pew. The discovery phasers? Okay, cool. Awesome choice. Mm. Um, And to come back to the point, I think I'm deleting this scene. Literary Treks what was it that caused him not to be with his paul immediately after coming out what was it that made that relationship strange and i think it was that Culber had really lost himself in a lot of ways and while paul was his anchor uh when he came back to paul paul had learned something by losing uh you and i think he i think he became the paul that you needed and i think that scared you a little bit mm-hmm. until he sort of found himself again
1: the edge a star trek discovery podcast because we've never seen all of those hairy mud bots again <laughs>
0: yes th- thankfully
1: <laughs> yeah uh i would appreciate the like a mention in history in season three is like oh yeah here's this time where the whole galaxy was crawling with these different harry Mudbots yeah. and rounding them up took years <laughs> you know,
0: that's right. what brought down the federation harry okay,
1: that was it it was harry Mudbots.
0: harry mud oh no the line a star trek picard podcast we got a lot of answers
1: in this episode,
0: which was really surprising Mm -hmm. to me. So there, you know, who's Dodge and whatnot. that's a thing I expected to find out in episode 10 going into this show, right? And here we are, you know, halfway through episode one and we know who Dodge is. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting. I'm, you know, that's that's cool that we're getting a lot of information, but getting that information is opening up more questions. And that's what else is happening
1: on Trek.fm.
0: Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at Trek FM, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details, perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at Patreon.com/slash/TrackFM. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at, at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at, at Clara Jean MC, and Tony at, at AJ Black Writer.
1: You're blended already.